Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Some 5,000 years ago, nomadic peoples of Central Asia settled on the Iranian plateau. Their descendants would be the nucleus of an extraordinary empire that reached north to the lands of their ancestors, eastwards to India and China, and west as far as the Libyan desert and the Aegean Sea. These were the Persians, who not only created the first of the world empires, but also brought about a period of significant and continuous contact between the East and the West for the first time in world history. With me to discuss the Persian Emperor of the Achaemenid Kings is Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones, Chair of Ancient History at Cardiff University and Director of the Ancient Iran Program for the British Institute of Persian Studies. His latest book is Persians, the Age of the Great Kings and it is the subject of our conversation today. Lloyd, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. So um, we're going to, to discuss the this this age of the great king. So when abouts, first of all, when abouts is this? Okay, so the, um, the chronological parameters I've set myself is about 1000 BCE to 330 BCE, but really, the age of the great kings is from the reign of Cyrus II. So we're talking about 559 BCE to 330 BCE when the empire fell to Alexander of Macedon. So essentially, late 6th century, throughout the 5th, towards the end of the 4th. That's what we're thinking. So we're, and I want to, for the purposes of, of time and also for, you know, spoiler alerts, fall of the empire to Alexander. Um, uh, we're we're going to focus on sort of the rise with Cyrus and then to Xerxes, uh, okay, and then to Herodotus. But uh, but first we have to disentangle some things. Um, Persia or Iran, Persian or Iranian or Mede. These are terms that we throw. I mean, still are a source of contention today, and we'll get back to that at the very end of the uh, uh, of, of the, our conversation. But what's the difference between a being Persian or being Iranian? What's the difference between Persia and Iran? Um, I don't think there is any difference per se. Um, I wish I could say that the easy answer is Persia for pre-Islamic period, Iran for Islamic period, but unfortunately <laughs> it's not as clear as that. Um, and in fact, after the revolution, when a lot of people, of course, left Iran, so there's a huge um, diaspora now beyond um, the borders, Um, there seems to be even less distinction between what is Iranian and what is Persian. I think 
finally, uh, a lot of the time it comes down to preference. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, people think that Persia, the word, has a, a bit more of sort of noble cultural cachet to it, whereas Iran in much popular discourse is kind of the harbinger of terrorism in the East and so forth. It isn't, of course, but that's the media portrayal of it. So I think a lot comes down to semantics like that. Um, but I would say that the word Persia comes from the ancient Greek Persis, and so therefore really is a foreign word for the country, whereas Iran comes from the word Eran, which is the Middle Persian or Pahlavi word for the land. Um, in the Pahlavi, um, Pahlavi language, you were either Iran or you lived in an Iran. So you lived, either lived in the land of Iran or the lands beyond Iran. <laughs> um, so I suppose um, for many people that that's, uh, gives more of a kind of historical cogency. Um, the, the matter was actually raised in 1935 by the first of the Pahlavi dynasty, Reza Shah, who said, you know, um, enough of calling our country Persia after the Greeks um, with all the kind of background of Orientalism that goes with that. He said, okay, let's go back to um, our pre-Islamic past and use this word Iran instead. But as I say, lots of people reject this idea of Iran because it, it doesn't fit with their perception of what the culture they're trying to endorse is. Within the book, I actually go between the two, Iran and Persia. I, I don't distinguish between them and I don't particularly want to. Um, I, I just let it be a little bit fluid. I'm quite happy with that. So and what about the Medes? Because then okay, they, so they the get Medes, mixed up all right, so The Persians were just one of many Iranian-speaking peoples who entered into the great plateau of Iran around about 1000 BCE. So at that time, there were a series of migrations that were going on from the central Eurasian steppes. All of these people were horse peoples, so they were big tribal societies. And over about a 300-year period, they began to settle, move down and settle into Iran. And basically, they settled into different parts of Iran. So our Persian peoples, they go right the way down the southwest, and that's where they settle, around um, the the modern-day city of Shiraz um, in the southwest. But other peoples, other Iranian-speaking peoples, um, settled elsewhere. So in the northeast, for instance, there was a tribe... Uh, called the the Parthians, the Parthians. Okay, so they were up there, uh, and then the Medes, another speaking uh, tribe of, of of Persian speakers, Iranian speakers. They settled around the Caspian Sea, in the north, um, basically in the area that is now Tehran. So while there are sort of DNA and cultural links between these different Iranian tribes, people, they were distinct from one another uh, as well. Um, you know, when you look back on those kind of history books of the 1950s and stuff, you know, the, the Medes and the Persians almost kind of run into one word, don't they? You know, there's no distinction between them. Um, but they were very distinct, in fact. They had a very different outlook on life. The Medes um, established themselves around this, um, around the Caspian Sea, and almost immediately upon settlement there, they started negotiating and working with the Assyrians, who were the dominant power at the time in northern Iraq, northern Mesopotamia. They supplied 
um, the Assyrians with horses, for instance. You know, they did a brisk trade in horses. And because they had this connection to the superpower of the time, the Assyrians, they had far more awareness, I think, than the Persians in the south did about the kind of possibilities of extending their lands. So actually, they were the first sort of Iranian peoples to extend a nomadic empire. Um, After the Assyrians fell from power, it was the Medes who occupied the previous Assyrian lands. And in fact, their lands extended right the way into central Anatolia, um, up to modern-day Ankara, uh, in fact. So they had a huge swathe of land in the north, but the Persians, a different tribe, were always in the south of Iran. So let's focus a a bit on the nomadic origins, which seem tremendously important. I'm thinking a friend Mm. of the podcast, Pamela Crossley, who's written about the the importance of the Turkic peoples, um, rather than just being a buffer between China and the West, Um, that they are a source of creative energy and ideas and customs for China and for the West. And mm-hmm. reading this, I realized, by golly, it's the same. What, what Llewellyn Jones is describing is the same pattern. I mean, yeah, it's, precisely, not, precisely. It, it's not just trousers, um, no. we could, uh, which it's, it's the thing that the trousers are for, which is riding a horse. Riding so we, a horse, absolutely. We've got chivalric culture. And, Absolutely. And, if, and if you think men on horseback is a, a, are important, uh, and they are, uh, and they've had a good run, it really begins, this chivalric culture begins with the Persians. It's, Absolutely, we, it and does. We'll, we'll get to this idea of the palace garden, but we see, you can see that whoever was writing the second chapter of Genesis um, mm. is doing something very clever. Um, he's very. using all the motifs and describing this is what paradise is. This That's is exactly the, right. the life-giving source of God on earth. Looks Absolutely. just like a Persian garden. We can go exactly on it. to like tents and domes. Every time you look at the United States Capitol, you're seeing yeah. the Persian vision of the cosmos, which is a, a, a step person's vision of the cosmos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's so exactly this, right. And the more I investigate the world of the nomads, the more the Persians make sense to me all yeah. of the time. I have to say, you know, that that when they moved as this this huge migrations over several hundred years into the area of Iran, of course, they 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 met with sedentary peoples, people who had already been on the plateau for thousands of years beforehand, in particular the 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 Elamites in the southwest, the great sort of Mesopotamian city states built around Susa and so forth. But um, I can't underplay how different these people would have been in a Mesopotamian setting, you know? So these people who didn't speak the Mesopotamian languages at all, they're not Semitic peoples, their languages, in fact, were Indo-European, far closer to English and German and Welsh than than Hebrew or or Arabic is um, to the Semitic peoples of, of the past. They were horsemen. Everything about their lives centered on the idea of the horse, their cult, their religious beliefs, their practical way of life, um, their mythology, their storytelling, um, their warfare, all operated in this equine context, completely alien to the worlds of Mesopotamia. And that goes, of course, with their appearance as well. Yeah, yes, with horseback riding comes the necessity to protect the body in particular ways. So trousers, long-sleeved garments. We get with the Persians the first ever cut and sewn tailored garments, essentially, you know. 
Um, the, per- the the Greeks, when they first saw this, couldn't get over it. I mean, they, they simply couldn't get their heads around it. In fact, Herodotus writes that the Athenians were the first to endure the sight of Persian trousers. To endure. It must have been such a terrible trauma for them. But it, it was, you know, for, for the Greeks, this covering of the body was seen as unmanly, okay? You know, the Greek aesthetic is, you know, semi-nudity or draped around with a, you know, a, a bed towel, essentially, okay? But for the Persians, of course, their, their articulation of, of status, pride, manliness was in the clothed body and it has remained so in Iran right the way through. There's no tradition of nudity in Iranian art at all. So you can see why these two cultures are such, such loggerheads, even from images of the body alone. You know, the Greeks thinking Persians are effeminate because they have to keep covering themselves up. And the Persians thinking, well, we cover ourselves up because we're real men. Why are they going around half naked, barbarians that they are, you know? So even when we just look at the, the, the body image in Persia and Greece, we can see that there's this, this breakdown of communication um, that becomes kind of the hallmark, really, of, of how the Greeks perceive um, themselves and their opponents. Uh, I just As I was reading this first chapter, you were dis- discussing this nomadic origins. I, uh, I just also read in an older, uh, a couple of months ago, that Smithsonian Magazine had a story, a reporter traveling with a, a family of Bakhtiari tribesmen through the, the Zagros Mountains. And mm. I realized, my goodness, these people, this anthropologist will get will Jones over this, is they, yeah. they um that this is they're they're preserving something of this nomadic lifestyle, uh the Bakhtiaris are that Completely, the, yeah. th- that the, the the Persians and the Medes that they had come from. That's right. Absolutely. I mean I've been privileged in, in the many years that I've gone back and forth to to Iran to spend some considerable time with the Kashkai nomads, for instance. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones who inhabit the, the lower Zagros Mountains. So they are actually closer proximity to the ancient Persian tribes than even the Bakhtiari. Um, and, and it's incredible. I mean, yes, lifestyles are, are preserved that way. But I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, that even at the height of the Persian Empire, the great kings like Darius and Xerxes, they retained their nomadic, uh, nomadic ideals still. The Persian kings still lived in tents, and they traveled constantly around their empire, um, essentially following the, the good weather patterns. You know, um, when it was too hot, they moved to, to um, cooler climes. When it was cold, they moved to warmer climes. Essentially, just like um, nomads, you know, herding their sheep around for best pastures. That that nomadic tradition never left the great kings of Persia. So we have to imagine that, you know, of course, when the great king moved from one locale to another, the whole court went with him. Essentially, it was the whole state on the move. We can see this in later um, societies too, which still uh, also originate from nomads. So um, we have lots of reports about this from the Mughals of India, for instance, you know, who even though they have their beautiful palaces, just like the Persians have, nevertheless, their nomadic instinct never leaves them. Um, and I think that's a very important point to think about. The horse in, in Persian culture, um, it, it can't be underrepresented. It, it is absolutely everything for them. Um, and I think you can really see it in, in one ritual that goes on, for instance, when a, when a great king um, takes on um, rulership, 
he doesn't go through a, a coronation ceremony. He goes through an investiture. So he's given the kind of nomadic clothing of a horseman, you know, a, a great, I, in, in the book, I call him a Khan, you know, so like Genghis Khan, you know, a tribal leader kind of thing. So he puts on this coat and then he has to do two things. He has to eat pistachio nuts, pistachio nuts, you know, to a penny everywhere in Iran. It's, it's, the, it's the, the base food for any nomads. And then he has to drink sour milk. And this has to be mare's milk, of course, you know, female horse. She gives him the milk. That, if nothing else, takes, takes us right the way back to the roots of the, of, the, of the Persians. And every great king went through that ritual before he could rule. It's almost as though he has to touch base with what his ancestors were all about and never forget what they were. And I don't think they did. I, I, I think it was very keenly in their minds always that they were essentially nomads. So they go on like this for thousands of years. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly on the Iranian plateau, this, what we call this, this, I, I use the term, this world empire, which I think you use in the book, yeah. um, which is, you know, it's their self conception as well as a description. Um, it comes together, but yeah. not by accident, but by yeah. will. But to do that, of course, there has to be, and this seems always, in, in some histories, this seems trivial, but it's absolutely crucial. It really means that two, multiple of these tribes have to come together. The Persians mm. can't do this by their own. The, the Parthians no. can't, multiple. So how does, that, how does that happen? It happens because of the aggression of the Medes. As they're expanding their territories in the north, they, of course, begin to look to the south as well. So they encroach more and more on Persian territory in the south. Just at the moment when, you know, sometimes in history we have to pause and think, my God, that person is the right person at this time. Well, in in Persia at this point, we have a, a young king who has come to the to the local throne. He's the chief of a of a tribe called the Pasagadai. We know him as Cyrus the Great. Um, the ancient Iranians knew him as Kurush. So he's a bit of a, a nobody yet, you know. He's just a, a very able um, tri tribal chief trying to prove his power. But he will not tolerate this Median aggression coming from the north. And what he decides to do is to do something that no Persian had done before, and that is to try to unite the other Iranian tribes. And this is what he does very successfully through propaganda campaign. We don't know how he does it. But basically all of these disparate peoples, different tribal peoples, are collected together under his banner. So he becomes really the, the king of all of these peoples to drive away the Medes. And they do it so very well that the Medes, in fact, are assimilated into um, Cyrus's uh, tribal confederation as well. And in fact, it ceases to be a confederation after that point. Um, they become really subjects of Cyrus. He becomes so powerful. He, of course, inherits, therefore, all of these uh, median lands which run up to, as I say, central Anatolia. And having gone that far with his army up to the Hylas River, Cyrus thinks, well, we might as well go all the way to the coast. And this is what he does. He pushes west to the Greek-speaking city-states of uh, Asia Minor. And the jewel in the crown of that area was the city of Sardis, which was without doubt the most wealthy and culturally significant of all the city-states of Asia Minor at the time. It was ruled by a king called Croesus, who's, who's you know, his, his word, his name alone is proverbial for wealth. 
And um, after a, a hard struggle, Cyrus's army managed to, to conquer um, the city of Sardis, brought it into the empire. And then afterwards, of course, the other city-states, Miletus, Ephesus, and so forth, quickly fell to, to the Persians as well. So suddenly, within less than 10 years, Cyrus had gone from being a Khan of southern Persia to a unifying lord to suddenly a king of an area which encompassed the whole of of modern-day Turkey. But that vision was not enough for him because rather than marching his soldiers straight back into Iran, instead he swung south and he went into Babylonia. And his aim there, of course, was... what is Babylonia at the time? I mean, so this Babylonia, is, neo, um, this is the neo, so-called neo-Babylonians. So the neo-Babylonians. So um, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of Nebuchadnezzar II, great Babylonian king. He was a great builder king. So Babylon at this point was at its height. It was the great power um, in the Middle East at this time. Its territories extended into modern-day Syria, um, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, um, and right down to the border of Egypt, in fact. It also included parts of northern Arabia, too. Um, the jewel, of course, again, was, was the city of Babylon itself, a true metropolis, a true, true epicenter of culture. Um, Cyrus played a very crafty game. He didn't go for Babylon straight away, but he made his uh, his way with his troops to a city just outside Babylon, maybe about 50 miles north of Babylon. It was called Opis. And there he let his troops run riot and they completely destroyed the city and they killed every citizen, including um, the the prince of Babylon, the crown prince uh, Belshazzar. He, he comes over in our sources in the Bible, for instance, quite a lot. Um, and that, of course, was a warning to Babylon. So by the time that Cyrus's troops reached the gates of the great city, the Babylonians simply opened their gates to him and he marched completely unopposed to the city centre. He went and paid his respects at the temple of Marduk, who is the great god of Babylon, and started a propaganda campaign which basically said, here I am, I am Marduk's chosen king, you better accept me. So, so in, 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 in just how long? 15 years. I wrote in the 15 margin. 15 years, all of, I, this, all of this was achieved. I wrote it's in the, incredible. In the, wrote in the it, margin, you know, I mean, shoot, shooting the moon. He's like playing hearts, and he's like gone. He's taken yeah. all the cards. Um, Absolutely, he's, he's he's taken. It's just it's 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 a crazy story. It, it's staggering, and I I know I can't I can't see that it was premeditated. I think he was an opportunist, um, but a but a good one, a really good one. He was visionary. You know, sometimes the, the term the great is banded around too lightly, I think. But this is a man who really needs, who deserves it. Now, I, I'm not, I'm a revisionist in my way in which I try to tell Persia's story. I just need them, I need us to revise what we thought about it. But I'm not an apologist. And we have to realize that empire building is a grisly business, okay? Um, so, you know, you do not um, build an empire of the size that Cyrus did, um, simply by going around negotiating, holding hands and, and rewarding people. There's a lot of square-jawed soldiers doing horrific things with spears and axes um, to get this kind of empire together. And the Persians could be as ruthless as any other empire builder in history. 
But what I find really remarkable about them is that once they had captured an area, they were actually very much laissez-faire with the way in which they treated it. So at his extent, okay, from from, um, from Cyrus, we, we get to his son, Cambyses, who brings Egypt into the empire, huge, wealthy Egypt, and the whole of North Africa as well. By the time we get to Darius the Great, the empire is stretching from uh, the deserts of North Africa, Libya, right the way down the Nile to Ethiopia, um, in the north to the south of Crimea, and right the way over to Pakistan and to the borders of the Punjab, northern India. That's the size of the empire. There had been nothing ever to rival it in all the centuries before. What's incredible is it it was ruled with such a kind of tolerance, such a light touch, really. The way in which the Persians set up their empire was to appoint satraps, we might call them governors or regents or viceroys or whatever, in the different locales. So there, in Egypt, they were, at Memphis, there was a satrap. Um, there was a satrap in Sardis. There was a satrap in um, Damascus and so forth. And they essentially um, followed the orders from the central authorities who were based in Iran. But, you know, as long as these local peoples paid their taxes and their sort of diplomatic tribute, the great king was happy and didn't do anything to disturb the status quo. And we often find that the satraps work alongside hereditary local princes and other dynasties to maintain the good order. Um, On the walls of Persepolis, we see diplomats bringing in their diplomatic gifts, and we have a long list of of, uh, demands or, or taxation, I suppose, that were demanded of each province. But as long as that came into the treasury, the Persians were great. So what I find fascinating about them is that they, unlike, say, the Romans or the British, they never imposed their language on conquered peoples. That's a huge thing, isn't it? You know, when when a language is taken away or another language is imposed on top of something, I say that as a Welsh speaker myself, you know, <laughs> okay, I know the sensitivities of all of this. Um, that's a That's a huge enlightened way of thinking. They employed actually a lingua franca throughout the whole empire. The language Aramaic was the the connecting language so that no matter where your scribes were based, in Babylon, in Persepolis, in Bactria or in Memphis, you could use the same language, which was a kind of neutral language, which is fascinating. They never attempted to impose their religious culture on conquered peoples like the Romans and the British did. They never attempted to even impose a kind of architectural style on the peoples of the con- the conquered peoples of the empire. I mean, if you think about, you know, you can in, in the Roman Empire, you could have gone from Hadrian's Wall to to the border of Syria, and you would know that the Romans were there because, you know, they they plonked on their temples and their fora and their um their circuses and this kind of thing. We you know it it's it's marked everywhere. The Persians did none of that. And conversely, in fact, they took the best bits of architecture from different regions and brought it together and harmoniously created something Persian, which out of all of that. Um, And then finally, they managed to string this whole empire together through an incredible communications network. I mean, first class roads unparalleled, really, in antiquity, Um, really the sort of broadband of, of 
of the ancient world. You know, you could get messages through essentially a Pony Express from Sardis in Turkey, right the way down to central Iran within about 19 days, which is incredible. I mean, it was the wonder of the world. They also employed the seas, of course, as well as as a main um, form of transportation and message bearing. Darius the Great even had the vision and the um, the capabilities to dig a canal from the Nile across to the Red Sea so that he could bypass Arabia and get goods down into Persia quickly. I mean, it, it's extraordinary what, the, what they did with the infrastructure, just the functioning of their empire. Just um, uh, before, we, there's, a, there's a lot there to ask questions about, but uh, I was struck by when Cambyses, the son of Cyrus the Great, uh, takes Egypt, yeah. He does so because of the well-timed treason of an Egyptian official, uh, which is accepted. I mean, there, this is, and it reminds me, of course, I know I was reading it and thinking Themistocles, the great mm-hmm. Athenian Democrat, who eventually, because of the jealousy, suspicion, what have you, yeah. of his fellow Athenians, uh, goes over to the Persians and becomes a governor. Exactly. I think he's basically a yeah. satrap as well. And sorry, this, yeah. because the Persians are going to take talent wherever it yeah. offers itself. That's um, so exactly th- it. This they, is they, part of their, this talent, is how they, they recognize things. it and they use it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, so and the, 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 the individual who really, I suppose, changes the face of, of, of the Persian occupation of Egypt is a guy called Wajahor Rosnet. We have his statue. It's headless, unfortunately, in the Vatican Museum. And the statue is, is, is written all over it with his autobiography in Egyptian hieroglyphs. And he quite clearly says, you know, um, uh, he, he's an opportunist. He's clearly an opportunist himself. And I suppose, depending on which side of the fence you would sit, you could either see, see him as, a, as a, a vicious collaborator or as, you know, um, a, a helpful individual. He was obviously so important to Cambyses that he allowed Wajal Rosnet to create pharaonic names and titles for him, put together the coronation ceremony at, at the old city of Memphis, all of this. You know, he was the kind of attaché of Egyptian affairs, really, for um, Cambyses, and was so good at his job that he was still in position in the reign of Darius the Great as well. The later king inherited him too. Um, and right the way throughout the, the their history, you're absolutely right in saying um, the Persians simply recognized the best and used them, not just individuals, but but whole armies. Um, much of the success of the military operations of the Persians depended upon mercenary forces, um, and they were not at all um, uh, perturbed at the thought of hiring Greeks. And in fact, Greek mercenaries really win much of the empire for the Persians. They pay them extremely well. Um, they become loyal to the great king, uh, and and they really do um, benefit from um, the service that they give to the great king as well. Um, that immediately, I think, shatters the myth of this kind of east-west, never the twain shall meet um, rhetoric that goes on in a lot of, still, unfortunately, a lot of uh, historiography still today. Um, there was no such thing as this breakdown entirely between the Greeks and the Persians, because, of course, the Greeks were never a unified thing anyway. Either individuals were fighting for the great king for payment, or whole polis, whole city-states were pro-Persian. Um, Thebes in Boeotia, 
Argos and the Peloponnese during the Persian Wars, these were siding with the Persians. They were actively fighting against other Greeks because they thought that their future, the security of their future, was better with the Persian Empire, which is really fascinating, isn't it? But, you know, that kind of fact slips under the radar um, for a lot of historians too too often, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, One thing before we move on, were the bureaucrats, say, working in Egypt, they weren't Persian either. They were Egyptian. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, we have a lot of documentation from um, Egypt in the early part of the 4th century. We have a complete archive of the satrap at um, uh, at Memphis. His name was Ashama, and he was certainly a royal prince, an Achaemenid prince. But in his household, we find that his chief steward is a man called Nachthor, which is a really good Egyptian name, of course. Mm -hmm. But working alongside him are men who have got Silesian names, Phrygian names, (laughs) international workforces again. And they can do that, of course, because there is this kind of, you know, it's like under um, under the Ottoman Empire, you know, this empire without borders, essentially. You can move around, you can do this. Before Brexit in Britain, we used to be able to do that. You know, we could move around. Um, And because Aramaic was this facilitating language, they could actually work anywhere in the empire because they had that bureaucratic language at their fingertips. So it it really did, the empire encouraged a kind of multi-ethnic approach, really. And the, the royal inscriptions of several of the great kings really push that idea, you know, that we're better together in all of this. It, this is a really uh, remarkably modern concept of what an empire could be. I, but it makes me wonder, what's the empire for? The Romans have an idea of law and of mm. of, of some sort of justice or of mm. peace under, you know, peace under the heavens, mm. uh, which, you know, really... You know, fills their gas tank mm-hmm. uh, and drives them forward. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so I want to I want to press on this because there's lots of stuff that are related to this. You say very early on the book that Cyrus, as a as a young Persian, would have been taught from the age of seven eight to ride a horse, shoot a bow, and tell the truth. Which I suspect mm-hmm. that's a Persian proverb, isn't it? Um, that is a Persian and, proverb. It's one that Herodotus knows. Yes, but and, it is core to everything. And, so and we spoke about the, truth, the horse. The tell yeah, the truth. Tell the truth. It, it yeah. is so important um, in the Persian ideology. So the at the head of the Persian pantheon of gods is the sole creator god. His name is Ahura Mazda. His name means the wise lord, the, 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 the wisdom, the personification of wisdom. He's sometimes represented as a kind of man emerging from a winged disc in a kind of Egyptian form. In their royal inscriptions, Darius and his successors speak about him being the creator of the world, the upholder of good, and in particular, the upholder of truth. The old Persian word for truth was Arta. Arta. So it's part of a um, names that we hear, like Artaxerxes, for instance, a king's name. Okay, it's a, it's a theophoric compound. Now, Arta meant not only the truth. It also meant order, stability, loyalty to the king. All of these things are encompassed in this idea of Arta. The flip side of the coin is a word that we find in the royal inscriptions called Drauga, and that means the lie. So that means disorder, rebellion. 
So if you rebel against the throne, rebel against the king, you are rebelling against the good order of the gods at the same time. So in some respects, I think that there is a similarity in the Roman and uh, Persian idea of order under heaven, and, the, and that the kings really have the mandate of heaven. You know, they, they are not gods. The Persian kings were never gods in the way that Roman emperors could even be deified. There was no concept of that in, in Persia, but they were certainly the vice regents of God. And they ruled on the behalf of the God, and what happened to them, whether they were followed or denied, had implications in the cosmic order. So, you know, when Darius, for instance, goes up against the Greeks at Marathon because they are, you know, rebelling against Persian rule in Asia Minor, what he's going up against there is Drauga. The Greeks represent disorder, okay? The the dark side of the universe, if you like. That's what the Greek, the, the Persians are always trying to bring into place. If you think about the, the Thermopylae campaign, okay, so when Xerxes goes in to Greece in 480, what happened at Thermopylae really with the, with the killing of Leonidas, the king of Sparta, was an absolute victory of Arta over Drauga. You know, Leonidas was a king who lied. He was a liar king. And, and, as far and as Xerxes was concerned, it's, it's job done. Yeah, precisely from that. So, you know, it's all about putting things back into their place because the world of the the cosmos for the Persians is a fragile one. It's it's almost like the world has got just a a very thin film that goes around it. And this is being battered all the time by these forces of darkness. To, you know, to use really precise historical terms, that makes the Persians as scary as hell. Yes, absolutely. When you've got an ideology, right, then it, then absolutely it does. And it's it this ideology is um is codified in in Persian art in a really interesting um figural way. Um the king is represented as a kind of Persian everyman really. He doesn't wear a crown, but it's quite clearly a kingly figure in the art that we see carved into the walls of Persepolis. And he sort of rolls up the sleeves of his garment and he girds his loins and he challenges and fights face to face with a monster. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a lion, but usually it's a hybrid. Lion's face and body, the tail of a scorpion, Mm. the claws of an eagle, um, sometimes with a a rhinoceros's horn. This is the symbol of like everything that Drauga is. It's a griffin. It's the visualization of what chaos could be. Only the king, only the king can put that back into its right place again. So yes, indeed, if if that's the way in which they're seeing the world, then everything out of kilter is threatening. But they have the ability to bring things to good order for your betterment, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And this is what they therefore do. Uh, and I'll reiterate the point. As long as, therefore, the subject peoples do not rebel, that they are part of that good order, they can have enormous liberties in the way that, you know, under Rome or, or Britain, people didn't on the whole. Um, but under the Persians, you can. But do not cross the Persians because... Um, they will interpret uh, rebellion as co- going contrary to the gods. Um, and we we hear, for instance, um, in the uh, 340s, 
the city of Sidon rebels against Artaxerxes III, and he reduces it to rubble. You know, they they will go that far. They will also, of course, um, deport peoples as well. So um, peoples will be taken from their hometowns or home cities, deported across the other side of the empire to make sure that there is no further rebellion. So they are they can be hard taskmasters, mm-hmm. but also there is a liberality about them which sits underneath that, I suppose, religious ideology. Some people have even said, you know, that the wars that we see being fought by the Persians are essentially a kind of jihad. Um, it's kind of religious wars. I don't know if I want to go that far at all, um, but I can see where some of my colleagues come from uh, when they suggest but, that. But certainly, I mean, uh, in, in traditional scholarship, dating back to the stuff that we grew up on, this, mm. that wasn't part of the Persians at all. Um, no, the, the religious enthusiasm, uh, no, ideology. It wasn't, wasn't, it, wasn't, wasn't, you know. it wasn't part of it. But what's really interesting is, you know, when the Persians conquered these places, they do not then impose their religion on anybody. Absolutely not. They have no interest in proselytizing it. It's just that their, their sense of world harmony needs to be encompassing. But they don't force Ahura Mazda or any gods onto others. And in fact, what we see is a very pragmatic approach to religion practiced by the Persian kings. So as I've said, um, Cyrus becomes a worshipper of Marduk in Babylon. He's happy to show himself that way. In the Hebrew Bible, of course, um, Cyrus is is the only Gentile to get the title Messiah, Messiah, the anointed one. So he's a good worshipper of Yahweh. In um, Egypt, uh, Cambyses and Darius are shown worship in traditional pharaonic gods. never imposing their religion, and yet still with a religious ideology which underpins the rationale for the empire. I so, I mean, just one, before we move on, um, to talk about, you know, the the limits of implementing uh, uh, the stability under heaven on, on Greece. Um, the Is this Zoroastrianism? And, and what do we I, mean by I, that I term? don't want to go that far. I think what is the worship of Haru Mazda, and how is that, how is that different it's, from what it's we now a, call? It's a dualistic religion, okay. black and white, uh, truth and lie, right and wrong. Mm-hmm. There are other gods within that pantheon who are kind of avatars, aspects of Ahura Mazda, Mithra, Anahita, mm-hmm. these kind of things. But within... Even Iran itself in the Persian period, there are ancient Elamite gods who are still being worshipped. You know, it's, it, there's a real mashup. It's a, it's a polytheism, which um, they, they do not want to limit at all. But what's distinct about Ahura Mazda, and I think in the Persian period, he's very much a, I think he's a royal god. I think he's a, the dynastic god, if you like, is this duality. Um, and I do think with, with him, they don't try to take him anywhere else. You know, they, they're not really concerned about implanting him um, on any other peoples at all. Um, Zoroastrianism itself has changed so much across the millennia that it's very hard to define what a form of Zoroastrian would have been in the uh, Achaemenid period. There are certainly elements of Zoroastrianism you can see there, such as the symbolism and purity of fire. But we're a long, long way from um, what contemporary Zoroastrianism is. Mm-hmm. So I would sit on the fence and I, I would call what Darius practices is a proto-Zoroastrianism, you know, a kind of early form of something that develops into 
a Zoroastrian faith. Yeah. Um, so we've already touched on this. There, there. It makes sense then within this ideology that the uh, Athenian uh, involvement in the revolt in Sardis and the Ionian revolt must be punished. Yes. Um, and at Thermopylae, well, before that, and then Marathon, there's Marathon, unsuccessful sort of basic punitive expedition. Um, but that lack of success at Marathon almost, does that sort of almost guarantee that there will be a further attempt to set things to rights? I think it's almost inevitable that after, you know, when the, when the Greek, when the Persians first came into the contact with the Greek world, I think it almost inevitably they were going to try to bring it into the empire. Um, not that it, but I think, okay, so there's a story in Herodotus where after Marathon, mm-hmm. Darius the Great, you know, goes back to Susa and he's, he's licking his wounds there. And as he sits to eat, he tells one of his servants, you know, remember, every time I sit down for dinner, you must say to me, sire, remember the Athenians. Only a pro- pro-Athenian author could ever have written that because I think I do not think for one moment that Athens was on Darius's mind for very long. They, the the unfortunate thing about Marathon was that actually, had Darius not sent his forces that way, the empire could have expanded much further in the east because India was ripe for taking at that point. And in but fact, the, you know, Darius made a major mistake by by pushing all of his troops over to the west instead. I, I, I noticed when you said that, and I and I, and I made a comment to myself. But doesn't that show then the importance of ideology here? I mean, yes, that, I think that, so, absolutely. That, that, to, that, to to bring that to, to to quell them, the Indians were much easier to cope with in a way because you know they were the same sort of peoples, essentially Indo-Iranian peoples after all. Um, but they, yeah, but 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 out there on this rocky outcrop that we call Greece, you know, they, they were problematic for the ideology of the Persians and they wanted to bring them under. And again, I, I will say that after Thermopylae, when Xerxes then marches into Attica and, of course, reduces Athens to rubble, that's mission accomplished as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the job done as far as, as he was concerned. Now, if, you know, <laughs> Herodotus would say hubris got the better of him then, and, of course, he's lured into... Um, the Straits of, of Salamis, by a lie, incidentally, told by Themistocles. And that's really interesting. In Herodotus's account, it is a lie that gets Xerxes, quite literally, into troubled waters. Really fascinating, right? Um, that's where he loses, of course. Um, but, you know, I, I think that if Xerxes had been victorious at Salamis or hadn't even gone there at all, I think he probably would have used Athens as a satrapal base. I think it's highly likely that he would have made it the the, the, the satrapal capital of the Hellenic speakers. And I think he would have used it with now the Athenian forces under his command, plus the other Greeks who are already on his side, to march into the Peloponnese and, and destroy Sparta. And what another story that would have been, yeah. you know, because if if there's any ancient peoples who were actually um, the antithesis of ideas of democracy and freedom. It wasn't the Persians. It was it was the Spartans. 
Um, you know, the Persians, had they won over, I think they would have allowed democracy to continue because it wasn't their policy to change things. Democracies ran, after all, in many of the Ionian city-states, and the, the Persians just didn't change it, you know. In many of the, the cities, Miletus, um, Ephesus, and others, the Persians just let it go on. That's absolutely fine with them. Again, they don't interfere as long as the tribute is, is paid. Um, and I don't think, therefore, that there that this kind of knee-jerk reaction we get in a lot of scholarship about there would have been no glory days of Athens, there would have been no Aeschylus or Plato or Aristotle, just simply wouldn't have happened. The, the, Persian, the Persians did not work in that kind of way. Um, I think it would have been assimilated into the empire. We would have seen the end of Sparta, uh, and we would have seen a bigger Persia, essentially. So let's uh, let's talk about sources, um, which means that we talked about Herodotus. You've mm. just referred to Herodotus as pro-Athenian. He certainly is, but he's also Herodotus of Halicarnassus, which mm. means he begins his life as a subject of the great king. As a Persian that? subject, yeah. And he, uh, he has – and there's something um, – that you made me appreciate uh, yet Herodotus and yet another facet of Herodotus, the, the, the gleefulness with which he must have set out to show the Athenians and the Greeks as austere and, and linear and, mm. and harmonious and the Persians as, you know, cent centrifically challenged, spinning yeah. out of control, you know, yeah. disorderly, you know, yeah. uh, effete. Um, yeah. There's something because, of course, that's exactly he, he turns the Persians on their head, obviously. completely upside down. It, and, you know, and, it's, and, it's, and and that is not, you know, that's not because he doesn't know the sources. That's no, not, not at all. This is this he is he understands is, the sources he, very well, and he, he knows is, them this, well this, enough this, to play he, with them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's what he does. He, he he holds a mirror up to the Greeks and says, "Look at Persia. It's upside down." It's like a you know, it's like a carnival mirror. You know, he says, "Look, it's topsy turvy over there. Aren't they just crazy? You know, they're not like us." It's it's an amazing, carefully constructed um, piece of of propaganda, essentially. Um, I think for me that the histories, Herodotus's histories, are a kind of rag bag of tales um, pinned together with a grand narrative of us and them ideology, essentially. Um, you know, there, there is balance in Herodotus all the time. So we start out in, in Persia with the great Cyrus. Then we plummet down to mad Cambyses. Then we bring back up, brought back up again to um, stable Darius. And then, of course, we reach the absolute antithesis of everything, the nadir with, with Xerxes. And that's what Herodotus is aiming at all the time, of course, is to bring Xerxes down to the lowest uh, possible level as a, as a human being and certainly as a king and as a, as a military leader, um, of course. Yes, he, Herodotus was born as a Persian subject. And I, and I think we get a good sense. I don't want to dismiss everything that Herodotus says, because I don't think it would be a shame to, to throw out the baby with the bathwater, because there are um, details of Persian life which Herodotus does throw life on. Um, details of of things like how they greet each other, um, what they eat, for instance. But really, his overall agenda with Persia is to make it the antithesis of what Athens was. Uh, you know, and, and don't forget, this is a. This is a work that was publicly recited by him in Athens 
this is what they want this is what they want to hear you know and as long as we keep think remembering that then we have to question everything that's said so for instance how on earth would Herodotus ever have known the the what was said in the council of war between Xerxes Mardonius and other members of his court um Xerxes tells Mardonius about his dreams you know this is typical stuff that Herodotus is just inventing you know d- dreams and 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 um and these kind of stories um and other things are either misunderstood or i think more deliberately misrepresented a very good example of this is the story um which is told of Herod- uh, Herodotus tells of Xerxes when he's marching um towards the Hellespont he 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 falls in love with this plane tree you know, he sees this tree and he thinks, oh, this is so beautiful. And uh, he, he weeps over it and he gives this tree jewellery, you know, necklaces and bracelets. And he puts a guard to watch over it. And of course, you know, this this became a kind of great comic scene uh, for Greek and later Roman writers. Elian um, does his own version of this. And, you know, in the 18th century, Handel um, does a whole wonderful operatic aria on it. You know, we think Xerxes, crazy man falling in love with a tree. But, you know, sitting behind this story of, of, of absolute crazy is the fact that for the Persians, like many ancient Near Eastern monarchs, trees were sacred symbols. They, they were abs- Tree cults were part of their world. And you can imagine for nomads, you know, seeing a group of trees, planting trees, this is a sacred thing. And the, what Xerxes was probably doing in, in that, in Herodotus' understanding but twisting, was offering gold, silver, essentially um, uh, cultic offerings to to a a sacred tree. And in fact, we've even discovered a cylinder seal Hmm. which represents Xerxes, who is named on the seal, doing that exact exact thing, offering uh, a gold talk to a a tree. Um, So, you know, sitting behind um, Herodotus's stories very often, there is what I would call the Persian version lurks there as well but we've got to dig underneath to see what it is each we have to time. dig we have to read between the lines yeah and yeah. and then it's of course best when you have something like that cylindrical seal cylinder seal yeah. to have the corroborating evidence what are other Precisely. sources other than herodotus for this period of the Achaemenid? Uh, there i go again with the period of the great kings yeah so um as a persian historian you know you you have to you have to um think wide because the persians never had uh, a tradition of written histories. Um, so there is no equivalent of Herodotus or Thucydides in, in the Persian world. Now, that's not to say that they didn't know or understand or respect their history. It's just that they told it differently. So we're dealing here, of course, with an oral tradition. And I think that most histories were passed down through families. They were family histories, family narratives, so we could have had the Achaemenid family narrative. Um, and they were passed down predominantly in poetry and in song. So epics, really, is, is the way in which this, these were passed down. Um, and we get hints of this from some of our Greek sources. So Herodotus himself says, oh, I know, he tells us one of the, the birth stories of Cyrus the Great, and you know, the youth stories of Cyrus. But he says, oh, I know another four of these. And we have a historian uh, called Catesius of Cnidos, who was a Greek, um, but he lived in Persia for about 17 years of his life. 
And he writes a, a piece called The Persica, or Persian Things, which only survives in fragments, unfortunately. But they seem to um, be Persian retellings of local family histories. So the history of um, a nobleman called Megabizus, for instance. Catesius um, is telling that story, but clearly from Persian sources that he's been talking to, you know, uh, and that's a really fascinating, he, he becomes a fascinating little gateway into a Persian tradition. But if you think about the way in which Persian history has been preserved in something such as the Shahnameh, which is the, the Persian epic of kings, it dates to about 1000 CE, written by Fadosi. That's a huge compendium of myths and legends of pre-Islamic Iran written in this huge um, epic verse, essentially. And I think that's what was going on in ancient Persia. But beyond that, for the sources that I can actually utilize, we have to go to cuneiform um, inscriptions, so royal inscriptions, um, usually carved into walls or stone stele. They can be very ahistorical, repetitive royal titles and so forth. Um, we have to go to different parts of the empire. Um, Egypt tells its own story. Uh, Asia Minor tells its own story. But there are lots of indigenous sources from the Persian period there. But then we've got thousands and thousands of clay tablets written again in cuneiform languages, which tell us about the bureaucracy of the empire. And these are absolutely unique to Persia, Persian voices alone. We get nothing of this from any of the Greek sources. So we can pin down a who's who operating at Persepolis. We told so much about Persian royal women, for instance. Even Darius's mother, a woman called Irdabama, becomes clear from those cuneiform texts. You know, she's unknown in other sources. Um, and then beyond that, of course, we have the very rich archaeology from across the whole of the Persian Empire, constantly finding things. Um, recently, uh, from the Black Sea, we've discovered a new stele from the reign of uh, Darius the Great. We have uh, amazing archaeology coming out of Iran itself at the moment. We've discovered huge swathes of the Royal Road. We've also discovered the little town or the, the, the sort of permanent settlement that was built at, um, at Persepolis, uh, we've also recently discovered a huge new gateway at Persepolis, which was built by Cyrus the Great in a Babylonian style, which predates Persepolis by about 30 years. So even our dating of Persepolis is changing uh, week, in on, on, week, week in on week, you know. Um, so there's so much there. And then, of course, there's the art, uh, which speaks its own language, too, um, what you have to do as a Persian historian is to compile a huge jigsaw of sources. Um, so you have to be au fait with all of this stuff, juggle it. And I think that when, you know, when I, when I finished the book, I, I looked at the jigsaw and I thought, okay, well, lots of it is complete, but there are big chunks from the middle still missing. And there's a lot of evidence from, the, from around the, the corner of the jigsaw yet to find. But we're getting there. Um, we're in a healthier state of knowledge of the Achaemenid period now, than we were 30 years ago, certainly. My subject really is, is within within the discipline of ancient history, my subject's a very young one, you know, and I'm really looking forward to what young scholars, some of my PhD students, are going to be doing with the discipline 
um, in the future. At the moment, you know, we're still looking at source materials, ways in which we can think about ideologies. In the future, we need to turn our attentions to things like um, ideas of ethnicity, gender and sexuality, all the things that our ancient historians, Egyptologists, you know, classicists are already doing with their much better known materials, we will be doing with Persia in the future. Um, and what I've tried to do in my book is just to introduce a little bit of that as much as, you know, as, as I can um, from the materials that are available and, to us. And I wish we could talk about that and gardens and concubines <laughs> and eunuchs and many other things. But I want to finish off yeah. with two things. One is, yeah. uh, of course, thanks to Herodotus, we often think of that from Plataea onwards, uh, from the, the, the killing, the death of Mardonius and the end of the attempt to set up this satrapy in, in, in Hellas, um, we, um, there's an inevitable decline and it fits in well, as you say, with, uh, you, you attribute this to Gibbon, but ideas of decline go back to the Romans. When yeah. things were good, the Romans were still worried about decline. After all, they had seen under the Republic. Um, or they had the idea of the Republic. So decline, declineism is one of the key Western ways, I think, maybe, who knows, of seeing the world. But yeah. it's not inevitable. So say, say no, there's, 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 no, there's no stepping downward to Alex, no. uh, from Xerxes to Alexander. Um, Absolutely The no. empire doesn't Actually, fall, no. so, doesn't decline. So it gets, right. It's pushed. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. You know, it's it's often been written that essentially after Xerxes we get sort of, you know, too much dependence on harems and and women and gossip and eunuchs and the 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 the, the great kings become decadent. Decadent becomes the buzzword incidentally, you know, in in these histor histories until Alexander comes and basically he puts the empire out of its misery, you know, because it's it's right. sliding down all the time. Well, I can honestly say that this is completely disproved by the by the Persian evidence. Um, first of all, it's important to remember that the last two important great kings, Artaxerxes III and Darius III, were remarkable military leaders. The two of them had long, long histories of campaigning. Artaxerxes III had actually reconquered Egypt, which had broken away from the empire for the previous 60 years. He brought it back into the empire. Now, this is a huge boost for the morale of the empire, but also for the economy of the empire as well. And his successor, Darius III, had been a brilliant campaigner um, in the north, and he continued his campaigns when he was established on the, the throne. Now, the Alexander historians like to portray Darius III as this coward, you know, runs away from Issus, runs away from Galgamela. There's none of that that can really be supported. He's been a pragmatic ruler, of course, you know. The empire rests on him, so the, his safety is paramount. And what we find with um, even the Alexander historians have to concede that Darius simply doesn't give up. He keeps rising armies, more and more armies, ever ready to challenge Alexander yet again. Um, Galgamela, for him, was not the final word. But the most compelling evidence that Persia was not in decline actually comes from, on the surface, what looks like really boring archives, government archives. A remarkable series of archives were discovered in Afghanistan about 10 years ago, and now they've been studied and looked at. They date from the reign of Artaxerxes III, Darius III, and the first five years of Alexander of Macedon as well. And these documents clearly show us that there was no decline in the economy, no decline in trade, 
no decline in diplomacy during that period. Everything was working as well in that period as it was a hundred years earlier. And Alexander inherited a state which was absolutely functioning. You know, if we were to if we were to see a rupture in the bureaucracy at the moment of the conquest, we would say, oh, look, this is a failing state and Alexander has come in. But it's simply not. Alexander, it's very clear, inhabit, inherits a really buoyant empire. So rather than the, using the, the metaphor of, you know, killing, killing um, the empire um, f- f- for, f- as a mercy death, what Alexander did actually was come in and he garroted the empire like this. You know, it, it was swift. It was shocking. It was overnight. It, it was really was a, a, an amazing feat of bravado. And I think the way he did it was he had superior military skills. He had new fighting techniques, the Sarissa uh, and so forth. And even though the Persians managed to learn these new fighting skills, they weren't fast enough. And, you know, give, him, give Alexander his due on this. I mean, he was, at, when he was at his best, he was a brilliant military leader, you know, and that's what, what happens here. And it also um, he has was ruthless. But we also see everything you've described about the empire shows how it could be o- overcome. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's delicate, light touch. Precisely. It's refusal to want to build its laws and culture and customs into other yes. societies means that it was a, it was a, I don't want to say shaky, but it was, it, it rested atop these other foundations, which had not been changed or it, precisely. It was like a beautiful wall made without cement. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And I think Alexander went for the weak points each time. Okay. So he attacks the, um, the cities of Asia Minor, always been, you know, troublesome for the Persians. He goes down and attacks Tyre and Sidon, always troublesome for the Persians. He gets down and liberates Egypt straight away, you know. So he does. He, he goes for the weak spots around the peripheries. The peripheries are always the trouble, of course. He's going to have a lot more difficulty when he gets into the heartlands of Persia. And in fact, you know, the burning of Persepolis, the destruction of Persepolis, for which we have a lot of archaeological um, evidence, shows that you know this was not this was not some random act of retaliation for the sacking of Athens. Alexander actually had no empathy with Athens whatsoever. Persepolis was destroyed because he could not break the the control that the Persians had over their homeland, essentially, and destroying Persepolis destroyed the last vestige of, of an Achaemenid cultic centre more than anything else. So this is why he destroys uh, Persepolis. But, yeah, the, the mugging, the, the brutal mugging of Persia hmm. was a shock. And it must have just... Uh, just imagine how that resonated throughout the, the whole of the empire and the rest of the, of the world. Because under the Achaemenids, there had been no rival empire at all. You know, there was nothing in the East or the West, to rival its size or power. And suddenly, you know, this kind of Macedonian upstart comes in and, and, and takes it away overnight. It, 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 the, the heart of it, the Achaemenid heart of it goes. Um, but the infrastructure, none of it changes. And, and that's, you know, what, what Alexander historians need to do more work on, is how 
the empire essentially under Alexander remained the same. Again, he didn't change anything. The change comes with his death, of course, you know, and the split up of, of the empire itself. So do we, do you have a hypothesis? Does that, does a lot of that bureaucracy continue to remain um, in an almost genealogical fashion through the Seleucid dynasty and into even the the later states all the way to the Sassanids, or is that... It, is it, to, is it, to a certain extent, certainly through much of the Seleucid period, if you look at um, Seleucid Mesopotamia, Seleucid Iran, then certainly there's very little change indeed. However, of course, as you push west to the Levant, big changes are happening there because, you know, we're part of a Mediterranean world where the Seleucids are up against the Ptolemies and the Attalids and, and so forth. So they are shifting identities there. But we're in the old Mesopotamian heartland and across the Zagros, things don't really change. When the Parthians come in, there is a there is a seismic shift in the whole system because the Parthians sweep in from northeastern Iran down into the plateau and then extend into Mesopotamia. And these people really are, you know, a different kind of Persian, if you like. You know, um, they're, they're not the same sorts of people at all. Their empire is built on very different traditions from the Persian, the, the first Persian Empire. More like the first Persian Empire, though, are the Sasanians mm-hmm. who come after the Parthians after a 300-year period of par- 400 years, really, of Parthian rule. And usually poor Parthians get a real bad write-up in history. You no, know, they're usually left out. It's it's terrible. They're, they're amazing people. But the Sasanians who follow them for the next 400 years then, they actually come from the same heartland as the Achaemenids. Mm. They're from southwest Iran. And they very conscientiously draw in their propaganda on the greatness of Cyrus's empire. They're very, very aware of it. In fact, at Naqshirostam, which is where most of the Achaemenid kings are buried, the Sasanians put up their own inscriptions, their own artworks as well. They're really investing in the, the heritage of the first Persian Empire. So Parthians are a, a kind of uh, a strange also-ran uh, in these three Persian empires, Sasanians far more like their Achaemenid predecessors. Though. And the Achaemenid, the, the mythos, as it were, continues. Obviously, the Pahlavis uh, yeah. uh, use it um, in yeah. some ways, yeah. uh, uh, sort of abuse it. Uh, uh, that, yeah, that, famous, that famous party. Uh, yeah, the Persepolis and Persepolis. Yeah, the Persepolis yeah. Uh, party, uh, which is a, has a lot to do with, like, very reminiscent of Belshazzar's feast in some ways. Uh, very but, much. The writing was on the wall. The writing is on the wall. <laughs> but even yeah. under the clerics, we have mm. an appropriation of the Caymanid past. And I would guess, as as the rev, as the theocratic revolution gets older and older, that there will be more of this in the in the next. There is years. an enormous movement amongst the young in Iran to remember and honour the Achaemenid past. Um, We should remember that the demographic of Iran is quite remarkable. I think it's something like 70% of the population is under 40 in Iran. So it's a very, very young society ruled by essentially octogenarians. Okay, So there's this great divide Per, the young people who are very social media savvy, they know what's being said of them in the rest of the world. They're keen to join the world. 
they are using the Achaemenids more and more as a kind of um, advert to the rest of the world about what they once were and what they could be again. They see their empire as a tolerant empire, okay? That, rightly or wrongly. That's the myth that they've decided to adopt. Let's go with it. It's important to them. But in, but in order to play them at their own game, the theocracy, the mullahs, have also now adopted this nationalist approach as well. So they are kind of bleeding, if you like, pre-Islamic pagan Iran into Shia Islam too. Cyrus the Great, for instance, is, is now being kind of honoured almost as a Shia saint. You know? <laughs> so there's a double play that's going on in Iran at the moment. I mean, among young nationalists who are claiming Cyrus and his empire for their identity to break away from Islam, and then the mullahs themselves, who are actually jumped on the bandwagon and are really sort of hijacking this sense of nationalism. Um, Iran, you see, has always been caught up in this dialogue between national identity and Islam. And it's really well played out right now. Back in 2016, at the tomb of Cyrus the Great in Pasagadai, which is usually every time I've been there, it's really quiet. There's nobody there. Over 30,000 people met on one day and protested against the government. And they chose that locale as the site of their protestation. You know, that, that's, that's really quite a remarkable thing. I say to my students all the time, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you study ancient history because ancient history is not a dead subject. It's alive and vital and really matters to us. And when you look at the way in which the Achaemenid past is being utilised in, in Iran at the moment, I can't think of a better example, actually, of how alive ancient history really is. It really matters. My guest today has been Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones. He's the author of Persians, The Age of the Great Kings. Lloyd, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.